I'm excited about the message today. It'll be separated into two parts, the first this morning and then the second this evening. If you would, uh, please go to Acts chapter 21. We're going to be doing a lot of reading today. I've been wanting to do a message like this specifically on this passage for a long time. I was doing some recording this week and these things came up. I don't know how many of you recently saw our Bible line video where we, it was posted this week on Friday. There was a clip from a debate about six years ago. It was a debate on the reality of free will. And there were two representatives for the Southern Baptists, excuse me, the traditional Baptists. And then there were two representatives for the Reformed. And if you uh, have your ears tuned to Calvinistic phrases, when you hear Reformed, you think, uh, definitely Calvin, all these councils and synods and all that. Uh, but in the debate, one of the defendants of the Calvinistic position, which says God has predetermined every meticulous detail, uh, very plainly and aggressively stated, in Genesis chapter 20, God stopped Abimelech from committing adultery with Sarah. And he said, just as God can stop man from committing adultery when he wills, he can also cause man to commit adultery when he wills. These are academic debates. What I mean by that is there's not a lot of hoopla coming from the audience. It's not like a, a conservative speaker going to a college campus where there's signs and protesting and stuff. It's very calm. And when this gentleman made that statement, which very clearly, you just heard me say it, says that God has the desire to commit adultery and then can lead a man to do that in his sovereignty, there was a gasp in the audience because people are beginning to realize this is the depth of Calvinism. This is, if God is in char charge of everything, if he has preordained his son to go to the cross and God is in control of everything, whether it is good or evil in the sight of man, then he also preordained the sin to come into the world that would put his son on the cross. That's a heresy. There's major problems with that theology. But one of the defenses in the video I did was Paul's testimony before Agrippa. And you Bible students may say, well, that's in Acts chapter 6. We're in Acts chapter, excuse me, uh, Acts chapter 26. We're in Acts chapter 21. I just, we had to rewind. We have to go back. I want you to see how Paul got into this situation. And I think it's very important for several reasons. And these are just some introductory remarks before we get into the scripture as to why I think it's important to see Paul's method of defense here. There's a lot to be said today about Paul's messages. There's a whole group out there, and I think it's demonically led, that tries to say the gospel of Paul differs from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, if you're a good Bible student, and I'm not yelling at you if you're not, but if you're a good Bible student, you can understand that when Jesus came in to his public ministry, the gospel that he preached was the kingdom is at hand. This is important to recognize the difference. See, we can kind of get stuck in only getting our spiritual food, our diet, from preachers. I'll tell you, as a preacher, I approach my services in a different way each time that I preach. When it comes to a Sunday morning, that is more of an evangelistic call. There may be people who have never heard the gospel, and so I make sure a majority of the content that I preach leads to a place where I can give the gospel naturally. On a Sunday evening, when there's maybe less people in attendance and they have a little more knowledge and expertise, then I'll start doing verse by verse topically. I'll even do that on Sunday mornings. Wednesday nights, it's more of a devotional style. But if you as the believer only depend on the food, spiritual food that's served in church, you're gonna be missing some things. I could we could take this study and break it into 60 weeks as we explain each detail and, and so on and so forth, but we're kind of trained to think gospel equals death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel of eternal life. We have to know what that word means. It's good news. I got a call from Spectrum at the church this week. They had a gospel for me. And you may say, really? Really? No, they just had good news. I could save money 
by switching my internet service provider from who we have now to Spectrum. You would say, all right, you're being funny. A little bit. But I'm trying to get you to see that word gospel means good news. Many people can have different gospels. When Jesus started his public ministry, he is making a legitimate offer to Israel. You accept me as your Messiah. I'm going to come and rule and reign. But Israel was stubborn. They were looking for a political redeemer instead of the redeemer of all of their prophets. And they rejected him. Jesus knew that this was going to happen. And through their unbelief, they became hardened by God. Jesus now then changes into his second part that he's going to have an hour. And you say, my hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. There's now threats on his life, legitimate threats on his life. He escapes each one of them. The disciples are growing stronger, recognizing who they are following, putting their faith in him to bring about that uh, salvation. Peter makes a very important statement. You are the Christ, the Son of God. Martha as well says that in John 11. But still, he's not going to come into Jerusalem to lead them into the kingdom because they have already rejected him. Then that third part of Jesus' ministry where he says, mine hour is come, is where you and I get the gospel into eternal life. Not to say it wasn't revealed up until that point, but a lot of people take the messages that Jesus talked about the kingdom and how the people in the kingdom are going to behave and how the kingdom can be accepted, and then they erroneously compare it to Paul's gospel, and they say, see, these two things are not the same. And here's the dangerous step that is taken after that. They say all of Paul's writings should be discarded. Now, if you're a good Bible student, you know from Galatians chapter 1 that Paul's gospel message that he preached, which he marveled the people in Galatia had departed from, he received it not from Ananias, the brother that was with him when he was smitten in blindness after the road to Damascus. Not from the apostles. It wasn't decided at the council of Jerusalem with James and the other from the Jerusalem church. Paul testifies under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Remember that, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul testifies, I received this gospel from Jesus Christ himself. So, if you as a Bible student come to the conclusion that Paul's gospel is different from Jesus's gospel, then you literally have Jesus and God working against one another. Jesus had something to say about when they said he cast out demon in the spirits of Beelzebub. Jesus says, how is the devil going to work against himself? A house that is divided cannot stand. Why then would it now change to where Paul has hijacked the whole New Testament? He's hijacked it for the purpose of making salvation free, as Jesus claimed it was to Martha in John 11. You got to be able to sniff these things out because it is very subtle. And I want to implore you, if you're getting your spiritual food from the internet, limit that as much as you can. I even say it for my channel. I'm glad that many people are finding Bible line, but I consistently say the things that I say do not make them true. It's based off of the word of God. You know the word and you have the Holy Spirit within you, which is a result of faith in Jesus Christ you will be led into the truth. But if you have a commentary next to you, or if you have someone else's opinions and thoughts and biblical hermeneutics next to you, and you shift that over the word of God, you will get exactly what that system is designed to give you. This is how Calvinism becomes Calvinism. Many times they already say, God is sovereign over all. Do you know that word has been changed as far as definitions? It used to mean free to will as one pleases. Sovereign control. Not like a republic where we vote things in. This is a theocracy. God's going to reign as he will reign. Amen? Calvinism changed it to say that God has meticulous control over every detail. One of these things is not like the other. If you take that definition of sovereignty and you throw it into the creation story where Adam and Eve made the decision to eat from the tree. Now, wait a second. Did they really make the decision? If God is in meticulous control of every action, did not God make them do that? 
if he's sovereign according to your definition, major, major, major problems arise. But nobody challenges it. You want to know why? Because today the Calvinist is the intellectual. And that is the sign of maturity in our culture today. If you know a lot, you're smart. Folks, I can, I can, I can show you people that know a lot of stuff, but it's not worth their knowing. Amen? You can know a lot of things, and it doesn't amount to, as Yankee would say, a hill of beans. Okay? We need to know the word without a theological system put into it. And as you study from Genesis all the way through Revelation, the redemption of man is without any involvement of himself. God intervened, sent his son, and now it is the responsibility of man to believe on Jesus Christ. That's the whole thing from start to finish. We first see it when Adam and Eve covered themselves with leaves. I wonder if they were designer leaves, you know? If they were like real high item things, you know, like, wow, they got the nice fig leaves. Ooh, I got the Walmart ones. It ain't nothing wrong with Walmart, amen? God said, no, no, that is not sufficient. What did he provide? The skins of animals. Folks, you don't skin an animal without killing it. The shedding of blood right there is shown that God will provide a proper covering all the way into Revelation where it says the Spirit and the bride say, come. Whosoever will, drink freely. Whosoever will, my educational standard says that means everybody. Whosoever means whosoever. You need a theological system to change what that means. And that's exactly what's happening. And when you see this defense here, and like I said, we'll do part one this morning, part two tonight, you're going to see Paul work through his responsibility given to him by Jesus Christ. So if a person stands against the gospel message of Paul, which I don't even like saying because it's the, it's the gospel message of eternal life. But if somebody stands against it, they realize they come against the very credibility that they say, well, Jesus' gospel is correct. Paul got it from Jesus. Hello? Hello? These things are very important to recognize. And I'm not, again, not trying to make fun of people, but I can see the demonic activity hiding in intellectualism. Well, what's your degree? Well, where did you go to school? You don't need any of that. Do you know what they said at the day of Pentecost when the disciples are coming out speaking in pro-languages? Not, not that. <laughs> no, they're speaking in languages that were understood specifically by people from certain regions. Do you know what they said? Oh, well, these guys went to the school of Jesus Christ. They, got, they have the credentials. Yeah, the apostles walked around with their degrees. You can listen to me because I have a degree. Do you know what they said? No, no, they said, aren't these those ignorant fishermen? Folks, anybody calls you ignorant? Not a compliment. They were coming against them because they said they don't have any knowledge. They don't have any experience or education, yet they're speaking in languages of which they've never been trained. People were getting to realize there's something beyond the power of these men, and it was the power of the Holy Spirit rolling out the gospel message. You take all that away and say, well, you've got to be educated in order to be used by God. <laughs> Who's education? Who gets to say what's right and what's wrong? The Word of God very slowly over time has been put on the back burner for theological systems. And I want, I, when I said, all right, we're going to study Acts chapter 26, and I started preparing it, I thought, there's a lot here that we've got to go to first. So let's do it, shall we? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'm reminded now to pray, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. Let us rightly divide it today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Paul is an example of the worst of man being used for the greatest works of God. He is an example of obedience in the, fo excuse me, in the faces of public opposition, which you'll see. He worked with diligence, wisdom, and intentionality. He was prepared for his work, and he leaned on God throughout his short ministry. Take a look at chapter 21 in the book of Acts. We're on page 1178. And it came to pass after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came with a straightway course to Coos, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from there unto Partia. And finding a ship sailing unto Phoenicia, we went abroad and set forth. Now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand, and sailed unto Syria, and landed at Tyre, 
for the ship was to unlade her burden. Lots of traveling going on. This is Luke from his perspective. They come to Tyre. They are going to get all the stuff that's on there off. Now in verse 4, finding disciples, followers of Christ. Now, it's important to recognize too, as you study the book of Acts from verse 1, chapter 1, all the way through, you're going to see some things called the way, the way. This is the teaching of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and faith in him equals eternal life. So as the gospel message is being rolled out, it's offered to the Jew first. The Jew rejects it, and so then it goes to the Gentile. Doesn't mean the Jew can't be saved. Otherwise, you wouldn't get things like the book of Hebrews, which is written to the converted Jew, the Jew who was trusting in the law and now put their faith in Jesus Christ. These disciples here are disciples of Jesus. They're called Christians first in Antioch. That name is beginning to catch on. Luke uses that title for them. We tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. So there's ministry work being done. After a week of work, there were disciples who came to Paul and verbally said, do not go up to Jerusalem. And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way. And they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. You know, this is why I like the book of Acts. It's real ministry. They went in. They led people to faith in Christ. They began to teach them how to grow spiritually. And in that one week period, as they went out and saw the disciples off, they ended by prayer. That's a good study. Some would say, well, you know, there's, there's too much going on. We don't have time to pray. I'd ask why. The reason why you don't have time for things is because we're not making time for them. That's, that's adult stuff, you know. And that's true. And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship and they returned home again. So they're traveling some more, verse 8. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip, the evangelist, which was one of the seven and abode with him. We know, we know our guy, Philip. Lots of educational qualifications, right? <laughs> no, he's just obedient, amen? You want to be used by God? Be ready, willing, and able. That's what we need. And the same man had four daughters virgins, which did prophesy. Now, you're going to see another warning here. There was a warning. It was not, I'm not going to say it was subtle, but it was not as aggressive as this next warning to Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle. Now what you're going to see here is a very, it's very accurate to how Old Testament prophets demonstrated God's instruction. It was uh, visual. The first person we don't even know their name from verse 4. They just said, don't go up to Jerusalem. Now we have this man who's described by Luke and therefore by God, because Luke's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This name, he's a prophet. His name is Agabus. And now he's going he's to visually demonstrate to Paul what's going to happen if you go to Jerusalem. Let's take a look. And bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle. Whose girdle did he have? He had Paul's and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we, and Luke including himself, and they of that place besought him, which is Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered. Now Paul's going to, he's going to disobey. A lot of commentators want to stick on this point and say, what does this mean? Does this mean that there was a decision that Paul could have made, and therefore, because he disobeyed, his ministry ended early. There are some that say, was Paul taking this as a divine warning that he needed to prepare himself because he was going to be imprisoned? You're going to see the answer later on. But take a look. What mean ye to weep, verse 13, and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 14, And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased. That means Luke is petitioning Paul as well. In his recounting here as he's writing the scripture, the author is also pleading with Paul to stay, saying, now this is an interesting statement here, the will of the Lord be done. 
So obviously, the instruction that was given to him through the Holy Spirit has now gone to the effect of the will of the Lord be done. If Paul's going to go, Paul's going to go. And after those days, we took up our carriages and went up to Jerusalem. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one Manson of Syria, uh, Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Now you'd say, the brethren, who is this talking about? These are talking, fe- excuse me, these are talking about fellow believers in the body of Christ in a very hostile city for Christians. Why was it hostile? Can we think of an event that may have happened quite recently that would cause Jerusalem to be dangerous for Christians? The stoning of Stephen, in which Paul uh, held the coats of the men who, you know, were ready to throw stones, and they killed Stephen. That happened in the end of Acts chapter 7. There's some things in Acts chapter 8. And then in Acts chapter 9, you have the conversion of Paul, excuse me, of Saul, as, he, as he's now called Paul. Verses 18 through 26, we're going to skip because there's a lot of content there that would require explanation. But as a summary, he goes into Jerusalem to help some young men to complete a vow. Lots of commentators stick on this point and say, Oh, this is where Paul was still trusting in his works. This is where he was still putting the law on some type of high degree. I don't see that. I think if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we see that Paul became all things to all men that I might win some. I think personally, in my very limited knowledge, it was an unwise decision. But God was still praised through it. This is something where we look at it and we say, if we look at a man's mistakes and we see the the power of God, he can even work through some very, very, Silly decisions that we make. Nevertheless, they are now going into the temple. So they're here at Jerusalem, and now they're going up into the temple. This is a major problem. You got somebody who's teaching all this stuff, this ornate, beautiful temple, these sacrifices we've been doing years for years, they have no value. Heresy. To the Jew, that's heresy. And now the guy who's leading all of this We saw him collect the coats. Now he's leading this rebellion. It's catching fire. He's now in the very place. People are not happy. You're going to see why. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people. Now, Take a look at some specifics here. It's important to note. What was the charge that was coming against Paul publicly? I say what his charge is publicly because this event that's happening, it's happening out in the open. And the people who restrained him, they obviously had some type of power and influence to communicate, hey guys, this is the guy who, what? And let's see what the charge is. We'll start in 28 again. Crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man, Paul, that teacheth all men everywhere against the people. What did, what, who is the people? Most likely, the Jews. And the law. That's how we inform who the people are. Because the law is given to who? Is law given to Gentiles? No, it was given from Mount Sinai to the Jewish people. He's teaching against the people and the law and this place. This place is what? The temple. By the way, this is how you study your Bible, folks. You've got to follow subjects when something is mentioned, highlight it, circle it, and then start when, when, when you see different words used to describe it. Is this the same subject? Is this the same person? You're following a line here. Verse 30, And all the city was moved... And the people ran together. Oh, sorry, we skipped 29. There was a man, his name is Trophimus. He's an Ephesian. Now, if he's an Ephesian, he's likely not a Jew, so he's a what? He's a heathen. He's a Gentile. He's a non-Jew. And they saw him now. He's going into the temple with Paul. That's not a place for the Gentiles. But if you understand the teaching that Paul had already done, much teaching to this point, we're part of a new thing. Jew, 
Gentile, bond, free, man, woman. There's no distinction based on that. You're now one thing, many members, one thing. What is that thing called? The body of Christ. That's what we're doing today. Those of you who are here today and you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who shed his blood on Calvary, was buried and rose again three days later, when you put your trust in him for the redemption of your sins, excuse me, for the payment of your sins, you're brought into this new thing called the body of Christ. We are not here at church because we are at 4811 George Road where it is zoned for a church. We're not here at church because we're in a building that we have all agreed to call a church. The church is the body. Many members, one body, look to your left, look to your right. That's the body of Christ, amen? Amen. Boy, if churches got a hold of that teaching, there'd be a lot less splits. I use this illustration on Wednesday night. Can you imagine if this little pointer finger was bothering you for many days, weeks, and you said, that's it, enough of you. Are you now better off or worse off for that decision to cut off a part of your body? Not better. Can you imagine cutting off a whole arm, a whole limb, yourself in half? We're supposed to work together in this new thing. That's why Prometheus was doing what he's doing. He's a part of the body of Christ. These limitations that are now man-made without any kind of power, they're in the body of Christ now. Verse 30, and all the city was moved. You know what it means to be moved? They're moved emotionally, moved to action. This is a riot that you're seeing here. And the people ran together. Can you imagine being Paul? I don't know how many of you guys have that like fear of being in public and then someone saying, hey, look, it's that guy. Can you imagine? You're at Citrus Park Mall and it's a, it's a packed Saturday and someone goes, there's that guy. Everyone would look at you and go, that guy? Can you imagine if now they all started running at you? <laughs> scary. Very scary. That's what's happening. We have more knowledge here. And they took Paul, they seized him, drew him out of the temple. Now, this is very important. They drew him out of the temple because of what they want to do to him. And forthwith, the doors were shut. See, there's this separation in people's minds. If I'm not doing things that are bad in a holy place, then, you know, God won't see it. Like, well, if we get him out of the temple and shut the doors, God won't care if we kill him. So they didn't want to kill him. Take a look at 32 or 31. And as they went about to kill him, uh (laughs) uh-oh, there's their intentions. Tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. So now the entire temple area is, whatever they were doing before, it stopped. All attention is on Paul. There's one man and they are getting ready to kill him. Why is this significant to the chief of the band? There wasn't a, you know, live music that night. It wasn't the lead singer going, hmm, something's weird about this. This is the Roman power that was in the area. I'm teaching the life of Christ, so a lot of this is fresh on my mind. But when Rome would conquer a people, they would try their very best to assimilate to the the culture that was already set in. This is why Herod was doing all these things when Jesus was born. And Herod said, oh, you know, let me meet Jesus. And you set up the Herodians, who were really just Roman sons of Herod that were trying to get brought into the uh, temple so that whenever the Jewish political leader came in, they would have a, you know, they would have a good face. Rome is only caring about control and power. They did not assimilate to the religion of those people, but they allowed them to do what they wanted to do. Jerusalem is under Roman oppression. This leader of the band is the leader of the garrison. About a hundred trained Roman soldiers are now being told, hey, your subordinates, the Jews, are going to kill somebody. The Romans Romans have laws for that. You can't just go about and execute somebody because in their mind they'd say you can't go about executing somebody because they break your laws. Do we have an example of this? Yes, Jesus Christ. If you notice, there were two trials of Christ. There was his religious trial. Who, Who did that involve? Yeah, the high priests. And they brought false witness, false witness. By the way, to have a trial in the middle of the night, unlawful. Ooh. They rent their clothes when they said, oh, he's going to destroy the temple. They're like, there, we got him. 
Then what did they do? Then they put them on the cross, right? No, no. They've done 50%. Excuse me, I'd say 25%. The first 25% was they turned the minds of the people. The next 25% was they got to get the high priest, our religious system, to condemn him. The next 25% is we have to get the rulers, the ones who have real power. And who would that be? Pilate. How many times did Pilate have to be persuaded that this man did something wrong? More than once, twice, three times. He had to go to somebody he didn't like, Herod. And the Bible says that Herod and Pilate, they bonded over this. They mocked Jesus as they mocked the Jews because they said, there's nothing wrong with this man. I, your Roman governor, find no fault with this man. And then what was the last 25%? The choosing of a convicted thief, Barabbas, over Jesus. You see why they had to do that? It's not just some story. It's not just, well, you know, God wanted to make it dramatic. These things are real for the time. So now we fast forward. Jesus is ascended. He's risen. He's ascended. And you have Paul now. They're getting ready to kill Paul. And it sounds like they would have done it, whether they had permission or not, unless somebody was alerted. Look at verse 32. There's an uproar. There's a problem. Who immediately took soldiers and centurions. And these are not, you know, the uh, active duty, off-duty guys, you know. There wasn't some guy playing 18, and he said, hey, we got to get this situation under control. Can you get over here when you can? No, these guys were on post, ready to go, trained. Ran down unto them, and when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. 33. When the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. So they're, they're railing on Paul. They're beating this man. Can you imagine as a Christian being in a culture where this is the expected response for you? This is why I say Paul leaned on the Lord. You read 1 Corinthians, excuse me, I believe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where he describes what he endured. This man knew the power that he was using was not of his own. And some cried one thing, some another. They're trying to get control. What has he done? This, that, this, that. And when he, this chief captain, could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. So now he's going to be under Roman control here. And when he was come upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. He had to answer for himself. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying, Away with him. So now they're, they're, you can see how this is out of control. People are, are, are ready to kill a man as he's being carried away into Roman, uh, Roman uh, captivity. They're saying, away with him. They're following after him. And, Paul was, and as Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto this chief captain, may I speak unto thee? Who said, canst thou speak Greek? Art thou not that Egyptian? Which before these days made us an uproar and led us... us uh, let us out into the wilderness, 4,000 men, and we're murderers. So do they have the right guy? <laughs> like, aren't you that Egyptian guy? Uh, you took the 4,000 and went into... That's you, right? But Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Sicilia, a citizen of no mean city. And I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. This is why I love, I love Paul. Let me say for myself what I'm doing. This is not the work of a man who worked against the message of Jesus Christ. I say this all the time. Be ready to give an account should you ever be pressed to do it. Know what you're going to say, how you're going to say it. Little turns of phrases. I would even say rehearse how you're going to give the gospel because there's going to come a time where you're going to have to give an account. Be prepared. You don't want to be in a witnessing situation that God has very clearly put right in front of you and you are at a lack of words. You don't know what to say. That is not a good situation to be in. Prepare yourself. You're not doing anything wrong in the eyes of God by sharing the gospel. I was just told last night they went soul winning. They went to the mall. And they're, they're about to get trespassed for talking about the gospel. Trent's the one that was telling me this. And Trent... Because he's a little confrontational, smart as a whip as well. 
He said, what if I was talking to them about football and how I wanted to persuade them that my team was a better team? What would you say of that? Oh, no problem. Zero problem. I do it with a little bit of a Canadian accent because I guess the ownership is they're Canadian. <laughs> Which you know, the free speech thing, everything's kind of making sense now. But regardless, if, let's say, the people who went Friday night soul winning the other night were trespassed, they have done no wrong in the eyes of God. They're prepared. They're ready. The apostles set the same example. We would rather obey God than men. Now some of you go, oh, my pastor said go get trespassed. You missed the point of what I'm saying. You do what God has said clearly to do. Even Paul here, he has the greatest power over him coming against him. Now the Romans are going to beat him because they think he's some other guy. <laughs> and he's making a, a plea and he says, let me say for myself what this is all about. And you may say, are we going to stop here? No, we're not. We're going to keep going. How many of you are, are enjoying a verse-by-verse -verse study? I love this. I'm getting ready to go to India in March. I'm working on my dissertation that I have to have ready by January of next year. When I get back from India, I have a lot of series we're going to start. We're going to go verse-by-verse verse through Romans 9, 10, and 11. We're going to talk about dispensationalism. We're going to do some light Bible study method stuff. However, I wanted to do this in this time because this is some of my fit. This is what I do in my office. I sit down, I open up the Bible, I have my computer screen there too, and I just take notes on things. And I love to observe it. And the book of Acts is some of the greatest literature ever written, especially when you see Paul's testimony in Acts chapter 26. It is fantastic. It leaves no question as to what this man believed. But Paul said, we read 39, look at 40, and when he had given him license, he had the license, and I said, all right, you can speak, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. This is what an orator does. He, he's going like this. Listen, listen, you know. And when there was made a great silence, which I wonder how long that took, because they're all up in arms, man. And now the very guy that they thought, they're going to kill him in the castle. Now he's, stepping, he's out on the stairs saying, shh, shh, shh. And he spoke to them in the Hebrew tongue saying, now I think there's a reason why he speaks to them in the Hebrew tongue. Because the conclusion that's going to be drawn in 20, uh, 22, not very friendly for the Jewish person who's rejecting Jesus. So, Acts chapter 22, you can just blow right through that chapter, right? 22, men and brethren, uh, men, brethren and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. And when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence, and he saith. This is a skilled man. Paul knows. If I want to get their attention and gain their respect so they maybe hear the gospel and believed, I need to be prepared in the language that they will accept. This is why I don't like street preachers. I'll be honest with you. The ones who stand on the corner and they shout and demean and rail against people. What have you done? What have you done but continued to push the narrative that Christianity is mean and unkind and rules? How about instead of standing on the box, getting down, having one-on-one -on -one conversations with people, and showing them how their sins have separated them from God, and God has made a payment for those sins, amen? You can be screaming and shouting about things that matter, but if you're not doing it in a way that is gaining favorable attention to the people, you're not doing much good work. And here's Paul. He's a great example. He's going to speak in a language that they can understand. And it even says the result is they were even more silent than silent. Maybe even they were holding their breath. They're like, what does this guy got to say? I am verily, verse 3, a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Sicilia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, you know from some other studies in Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel is a very, very highly regarded teacher. He had the sway and ear of the people. That was a credit of authenticity to maybe those who doubted Paul's intentions. There may have been people even there that didn't even know he was a Jew. And now because he's speaking clearly for himself, he goes on, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. This is a master course in favorable attention. He didn't go up there and say, you dummies, 
He wasn't as harsh as Stephen. Now listen, you may say, well, Stephen should have done what Paul did. First of all, Saul was against Stephen at that time. But who was Stephen's audience? You remember? Yeah. Thank you, Tom. The religious teachers. I would address the board of Florida Bible College in a different way than I would students in the class of a doctrinal error. If the board of FBC of Tampa started teaching something that was contrary and my students started teaching the same thing, I would teach my students in a different way because they have a less level of knowledge in, at that point. But the people who have more knowledge, they're going to be dealt with more viciously because they have more responsibility to the word. Stephen did what he did because he was going against the people that should have pointed to Jesus Christ, but these are the same people that turned the minds of the individuals in Jerusalem against Jesus. So Stephen had some things to say. Paul, however, is trying to win the people who have been persuaded away from Christ. Partly because of the things that the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes were saying, and partly because of their own unbelief. Verse 4, And I persecuted this way, Unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest doth bear me witness. Again, he's appealing to another authority here. And all the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren and went to Damascus to bring them which were bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. Now you come tonight, we're not stopping here, but you come here tonight, you're going to see there's even more detail. Not only did Paul bring people into prison, not only did he testify against them, that testimony was used for their, uh, the capital punishment of the state against them. They lost their lives. Now he's talking about he's getting ready to go to Damascus. Any of you have an inkling of where this is going? God shows up. And he's going to use Paul to do great and mighty things. Verse 6. And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh into Damascus, if he's coming near Damascus, he must be on a road to Damascus. This is Acts chapter 9 with a little more detail. And that's why, that's why I like it. About noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell into the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me. Verse 8 is very important. And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. So, may I have your eyes for a moment. Everything that Saul was doing in his life, his education, <coughs> the fact that he was a Pharisee, the fact that now he's being used by Jerusalem as a weapon to persecute Christians, when he hears the statement in verse 8, I am Jesus of Nazareth, he not only has identification of this encounter, but he also has a more specific identification in that whom thou persecutest. So now in the smart mind of Paul, he's going, all these people, all this doctrine, all these things that I've been doing are going against the body of Jesus Christ. I believe this is where he becomes saved. Not by God shining a light and educating him on that, but in the presence of that knowledge, he turns, and listen now, from the way of the law to the way of righteousness, which is just a change of mind. He changes his mind and puts his faith in Jesus Christ. Continuing in verse 9. And they that were with me saw indeed the light. They were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him which spake to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? Now, pay attention. In verse 10, excuse me, in verse uh, 8, Paul says, who art thou, Lord? In verse 10, he says, what shall I do, Lord? This is where I think the difference is shown. He's looking for identification in verse 8 of who is this person who speaks to me with great power. He receives knowledge of it. And then he says, what will you have me to do? I don't think this is evidence of his conversion, but it is evidence that now he looked at Jesus 
as someone of whom he served. His faith is in him. Now he wants to be used by God. And boy, does he get an assignment. Look at what it says. The Lord said unto me, Arise, go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. Now we've zoomed in on Paul here. Can we zoom out and remember? He's saying this to people. He's saying this to Jews. I wonder how many were like this. I mean, we're on the, I'm on the edge of my seat and I'm not even sitting down. This is exciting stuff. I can't imagine what must have been the tension in the crowd as he's speaking these things. Verse 11. That ends what Jesus is saying until later. <clears throat> and when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. So now he's blind. He cannot see. He needed assistance going forward. Now, verse 12, very important. We have the introduction of a man named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there. He's well accepted, but he's a part of the body. He's a part of the way. He's a Christian. Came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked up upon him. And he said, now this is Ananias, and Ananias will speak through verse 16. And those of you Bible students who know what's coming up, you know this next part here has been used by many, many people to evidence that baptism equals the washing away of sin. Pay attention, we'll talk about that in a minute. But this is Ananias communicating to converted Saul. He has believed unto eternal life. The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. Now stop for a second. You see that word chosen, thee. You see the word chosen, you should see that he was chosen for three specific purposes as revealed by Ananias, none of them being eternal life. You notice that? Paul's election here, the revelation of his election, is as a servant, not as unto eternal life. The election here is not for justification, but for the purpose of God. And that was beyond Paul's control. God chose him. Is he sovereign to do that? Yes. Did he go against Paul's will to believe on Jesus and make him believe? No, that's not why he was chosen. Remember the statement in verse 10, what shall I do? He now gets knowledge here. And we know from other places, especially when we get into tonight, that there's even more that was revealed to him leading into this. But why is he only including these details? Remember his audience. He's speaking to Jews. Verse 15, For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. People will take this verse and make it the only verse that talks about how to be born again. Why is it significant for Paul to get up and be water baptized? Why is that significant? What was he going into Damascus to do? deliver the letter for those Christians who were in Damascus awaiting their punishment to go ahead and be punished, likely be killed. Can you imagine if the messenger of that very way in which he was going to condemn now comes into the city and gets baptized publicly showing that he has come from unbelief to belief in Jesus Christ? That's the significance, I believe, of getting baptized and washing away his sin. So you may say, but this says it washes away sin, so if I'm not water baptized, I'm not really saved. Well, I'm going to show you some, a very important verse that just, it's almost as if God knew this stuff was going to happen. Hold your spot here and go to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. In verse 21, page 1314, I'm going to take a drink of water here. By the way, I don't know which one of you got me this cup. It showed up in the mailbox like two years ago. 
But it's really funny. It's got a dog on the front, and someone calls him a good boy. You know, like we do with all dogs. There's no bad boy. Well, you know, there is. But... And it says, his response is, no one is a good boy. Calvinist dog. <laughs> Those of you who get it, get it. Verse 21. Look at this statement. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you understand the function of parentheses, it is supposed to explain something in a separate thought that was just said. The like figure whereunto even baptism also, excuse me, doth also now save us. If you skip that parenthetical statement there, it goes right to by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The explanation is Peter's making sure, as he says, not that water baptism saves you. That's why he says not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. We all know the purpose of taking a bath is to, we're not going to say, honey, I'm going to put away the filth of the flesh. No, you don't, don't say that, but that's what's happening. You're getting the dirt off. He's not saying it's not that baptism into the water washes away some dirty, unseen sin on you. That's done by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, amen? But it's a good conscience towards God. Why? You are publicly revealing what has already been done. You're showing, I believe, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I've been buried in the likeness of his death, and now I'm raised again to walk in newness of life through that new nature, through the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine what kind of day that must have been when Paul was baptized? Monumentous. Take a look back now in Acts chapter 22. We got a little bit more to read and then we'll stop for the day. Or for, for the time being. And we'll meet back here tonight. Verse 17, And it came to pass, we're in Acts 22, And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. He receives a vision from the Lord. And saw Him, Jesus, saying unto me, Make haste, get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for, thy will, for they will not receive the test, thy testimony concerning me. Now remember, zoom out. Who's hearing this? <laughs> the very people that Jesus prophesied were not going to receive his testimony. Uh-oh. You think things went well from here? Those who wanted to find the truth, those who were seeking after real righteousness with God, they were probably converted at this whole thing. But those who just wanted to kill Paul because he was a threat to their religious rites, ceremonies, and rituals, this was more evidence. Jesus was not looked at fondly by the Jewish people at this time. And I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. Very important. Paul does not say those that believed and were baptized, those that believed and confessed, just those that believed. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting, agreeing unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he, Jesus, said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the who? Boy, the Jewish audience did not like this. You know what they already thought about that man who was the Ephesian. And they gave him audience unto his word, and then lifted up their voices and said what? Away with such a fellow from the earth. It's not like you're getting kicked out uh, you know, and just go away. You know what it means to be put away from the earth? You're done. Kill him. Wow. For it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out, and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore he, uh, they cried so against him. Now you remember the chief captain asked Paul, when he said, can I ask you something? The guy said what? Can you speak Greek? What was this whole thing just in? Greek or Hebrew? Hebrew. So here's the chief captain listening to a language he don't know. Great silence, really big silence. This man speaks in an unknown language. People are getting uncomfortable. 
he says something really interesting because now people are shouting even stronger, and now it's in the same place it was before. <laughs> and he says, you know what? Just lead them in, we'll beat them. Remember, the Roman idea is just keep peace and control. They want him beaten, let's beat him. Verse 25, and as they bound him with thongs, these are things that hold him in, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is Roman and uncondemned? <laughs> Interesting. <coughs> Evidently, Paul is what is called a freeborn, probably under his, his father. And he says, is it lawful for you to do to me, uh, do this to me as a Roman who has not had what? His day in court. He has not appealed. When the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed that thou doest for this man as a Roman. He's a Roman. Now listen, he just said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus, but they don't understand that. Then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yeah. <laughs> no, just yay. And the chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained, um, and the chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, But I was freeborn. Then straightway they departed from him, which should have examined him. And the chief captain also was afraid after he knew that he was a Roman. And because he had bound him, there was no Roman charge brought against him. On the morrow, now this is where we're going to stop for today, or for, for this morning, and we'll get into the evening. On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty wherefore he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before him. So now Paul has gone from hearing, he has given his testimony to the public. He will now give his testimony to the Sanhedrin, the religious elites, Jewish audience, Jewish audience. Then he's going to speak before Agrippa. This is the Gentiles. You're going to see this step of Paul revealing more information, more information each time, all to the praise, honor, and glory of Jesus Christ. It's an excellent piece of literature because you get to see very clearly from the beginning the charges that were laid against him. Where did we start this morning? You can close your Bibles. Where did we start this morning? We started in 21. When they're on their missionary journeys, wrapping up, they're praying people out. Don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. They continue to do ministry work. A prophet comes and binds himself and says, in the way that I am bound this way, you also will be bound if you go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, I'm going to go. They say the Lord's will be done. He goes in. He goes to the temple to help somebody with their vows. They see that there's an Ephesian going into the temple. They cause uproar because, hey, that's the guy. He's let out after this riot. And now he, he's, he's taken into Roman captivity. He gets a chance to address the people. What do the people do in the light of knowledge? They reject it. Now he's going to go speak to the Sanhedrin. And I got a little bit of a spoiler alert. That doesn't go well either. Does that mean that God's word is ineffective? No, it means that the heart of man is desperately wicked. And if you're an honest person today, and I pray that you are, you know that you are also filled with sin. God has demonstrated the greatest demonstration of love by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross. It redeems people like you and me. We may look at others in our society who are quote-unquote worse than us. Are they really? If there's one sin, it's punishable by eternal separation from God in hell. We're here today. We're put together. We have our Sunday best on. We're, we're clean. And we may think these things make us better than others. We're all sinners, folks, in need of a Savior. Jesus Christ, He went to that cross of Calvary, innocent, fully God, fully man. He took that sin that was not His own and paid it. He cried out on the cross, it is finished. That payment for sin has been applied. And in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection, He guarantees those that believe on Him will likewise raise from the dead again. I'm looking forward to heaven where I'm not taking this body. Amen. I'm not working here to get it in the form of eternity. I'm going to get a brand new one. That's nice. And that's only because Christ died for my sins. That's the message here of Paul. 
That's the message that I have for you today. Look up here for a moment. If this hand represents you and me, this block of sin is going to represent exactly what it is, sin. We're all sinners. We just talked about that. This sin, it separates us from God. God, he loves us very much. The sin is what he hates. It causes this separation. You got to be absolutely perfect to get to heaven. So many people want to define this. Oh, perfect, you know, is 51 out of 52 available Sundays. That's, you did it. That guy who did the 50 out of 52, God bless his soul. I think he'll make it. How silly. A lot of people think they can buy their perfection. If I go to church, if I pray, if I really just be a good citizen according to these laws in this country, well then, hey, I'll get in. No, no, the wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. Eternal separation from God forever in a literal fire-burning hell. God loves us, but even his love for us is not going to cause him to change what the payment for sin is. Jesus came into the world. Fully God and fully man. And as that man, he went to the cross of Calvary. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is salvation. That is the assurance. That is the security that you can have. You as a sinner put your trust in Jesus Christ the Savior, the Son of God, that what he did on the cross paid for your sins, should not perish, but have everlasting life. And now you, as a person whose sins are paid, you have a brand new nature. God says, justified, redeemed, the blood applied. Amen? That never changes. Now you got something to sing about. Now you got something to talk about. Now we have a hope beyond this world. You know how many people are just hoping for their week to go well because they want Tampa to go into Detroit and win? And if that doesn't happen, not only will they be upset, but they'll lose a lot of money too. You know, how people are, you know how many people are about to ruin their lives this weekend? With gambling on uncertain riches? Oh, it's fun while the game's going on. They're drinking, they're howling with friends, but then they lose it all. Aren't you glad that the performance of your local sports team does not determine your joy? Amen? Amen. We have something so much greater than that. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you're here today and you'd like to have assurance of heaven, you'd like to know, I'm going, it's that simple. Put your trust in the Son of God whose name is Jesus, that what he did on the cross paid for all your sins. And in that very moment, it may have just happened a moment ago, you are saved. Period. Would you pray with me? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. If you are here this morning, and that's you, you say, Pastor, I came in here trusting in my good works, trusting in my physical performance, the fact that I'm not as bad as somebody else who's worse than me. But I realize now I have to be perfect to get to heaven, and I fall short every time. And I have changed my mind. I've put my trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who shed his blood on Calvary, to pay for my sins. I believe on him. If that describes you today, you're what, you are what the Bible calls sozo, which is Greek for you are saved. You're saved into eternal life. And we would like to pray for you. I ask for heads bowed and eyes closed just to give you the respect. But if that's you today, say, Pastor, I've put my trust in Jesus Christ. I now know I'm going to heaven. Would you pray for me? I certainly will. Would you just raise your hand and let me know? Raising your hand doesn't save you. No one's going to walk down the aisle and tap you on the shoulder or anything like that. Raising your hand just tells us that it made sense to you today. And I'd like to pray for you. Anyone at all before we close, God bless you. Amen. Anyone else? Let's pray for our new sister in Christ. Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to share the real message of power. I pray for our sister who has just put her trust in you. I pray, Lord, that she would be strengthened, given all that she needs. I pray that this can be her local church and that we, as the ones who teach here, Lord, would be responsible with your word. I now turn to the body, Lord, those who are here today who 
have already experienced salvation. I pray that we would be excited about the Word. Excited to learn and glean as much as we can. And then be obedient to obey you. Lord, we pray for your soon return. Let it be today, but if we are to wait, I pray we're given strength. In the precious, powerful name of Jesus, I joyfully pray these things. Amen. Would you stand with me together here? A couple of things before James talks. Don't forget, if you have a giving statement, or before James sings, <laughs> he goes, talks, yeah. Uh, we have the giving statements down the hall. There is going to be uh, a wanna tonight that's all back and, and ready to go. And also, if you're a member of the church, make sure you grab a ballot and a budget, okay? Let's have James come up. Thank you, James. It's a very low bar, but you'd much rather hear me sing than hear me talk. All right, let's, let's close off the service with let's just praise, let's just praise the Lord. See? Let's just praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's just lift our hearts to heaven and praise the Lord. Let's just praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's just lift our hearts to heaven and praise the Lord. Wonderful singing, everyone. Hope to see you tonight.